0: You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we begin a new study examining how we're intended to love, live, and learn from others in our church family. With this week's message, here's shepherding pastor, Joe Cook. Well, you may have recognized some cheesy Mm -hmm. uh, sitcom music from the 80s there, Uh, Life in the Family. If you've ever watched a sitcom about a, a family and their comical conflict, chaos, and confusion that takes place, you know that sometimes it can be very interesting. Sometimes it hits a little close to home. You see a family going through something you're like, yeah, that's happened in our, our house too. But there's a big difference in a sitcom family and your family. Theirs usually get resolved in about 30 minutes or less. I don't know about you, but the conflict, chaos, and confusion that takes place in my home is seldom resolved in 30 minutes or less, and oftentimes is less humorous. We're starting a new series, Life in the Family. If you missed the title slide, here it is, Life in the Family, the One and Others. This is going to flow out of our last series. In our last series, we were talking about the church. We talked about what the church is and what the church does, and last week, Lance walked us through our church, our Little C Church, this local family. He walked us through how we've changed the vocabulary on our mission and our values. Our mission hasn't changed, but we've tweaked our mission and, and how we phrase it in, a little, in, a, in certain ways. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But this concept that the church is a family. Now, I know not all of you have good Families of origin. And so maybe the word doesn't set just right with you. But I'm going to ask you to bear with me because hopefully what we're going to see is we have an aspirational family, a family that we're moving towards, one that God has a vision for us in. The idea of the church as a family is not original with us, it comes from the Apostle Paul and from the Bible itself. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And notice, Members of the household of God. Now, this is a great verse. This is good news. This is the Apostle Paul saying, I've got good news for you. You're not alone. You don't have to be alone. When you come into the family of Christ, when you place your faith in Christ, you're now part of a citizenship. You, you belong. But more than that, you're part of a home. That word household, it's a family word. It means kinship. It means you're related by some strong bond. Where I came from, sometimes you'd hear the phrase, "blood thicker than water, meaning they're going to stick with their kinfolk. They're blood-related, things like that. Now, here's the reality. In the Christian family, our bond is much more significant than DNA. Our bond is the blood of Christ. And we have good news with this idea of the church being a family, and it's that we have a perfect father, That's the good news. We have a perfect father. Not only do we have a perfect father, we have a perfect example in Jesus who is the eternal son of God, this ultimate sibling who came to earth and he modeled for us what it was like to live out the one another's that we're going to talk about in this series. So that's the good news. But now here's the bad news. And it happens when we get past the father and get past the perfect son and we get to all of us because one of the things that we learned last week when when Lance walked us through that idea of our new mission statement, which is this, our mission is to develop maturing followers of Jesus Christ. We, we wanted to emphasize the fact that it's a process. Use the idea that we start with A when we're born into this family and we're working our way to Z, and it's a progress. It's a process. We're not all at the same place. Some of us may be stuck in the ABCs. Some of us, maybe you're getting close to the XYZs, But we're all in the same family together. And maybe you've noticed that even in the church family, there's conflict, confusion, and chaos. See, all our family members are are different. I bet in your family of origin, you've probably heard the word dysfunction. Because you know what? Every family has a certain degree of dysfunction. There's that weird person that you can't seem to get along, can't can't get a good beat on what they're like. And maybe that weird person's you. I may be the weird Uncle Joe in my family. Okay, And I have a lot of nieces and nephews, and they're probably going, "Hmm, maybe. So in a family, you have all kinds of characters and all kinds of issues that arise, and we're all at a different level of maturity. So we need some guidance on how to get along because let's be a little bit more serious. The reality is in our family of origin and in our church family, sometimes we hurt each other. And so this series of life in the family, the one another's, Hopefully, we'll be healing. Hopefully, we'll start learning some things about how Jesus has this vision for us to love one another. It's going to be challenging at times. And where we're going to go next is extremely important because the next section, which is going to take us about 8 to 10 minutes, I want you to really, really listen closely because we're going to talk about the cornerstone principle for this whole series all of the verses are going to come from the Gospel of John. You don't have to turn there. They're all going to be on the slide or they'll be in your, in your bulletin or the version app. You see, God said he wants us to be a family. And when Jesus was on the earth and he started gathering his disciples together, he began to cast a vision for them. There's a very special moment in his life. Those last few hours before he was betrayed, before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he was arrested, there's this uh, section of scripture we call the upper room discourse where he's having very intimate conversation with those closest to him. And where we're going to jump in, Judas has already left the building. He's been sent on this errand that he's going to do where he betrays Christ and everyone else that's left there, they are believers, not perfect believers. They're maybe more in the ABC area at this moment, but they're believers. They, they know who he is and they're committed to him. And he says something to them. He says this, a new commandment I give to you. Let's just stop there. Once you've been walking with a guy like Jesus for three years, when he says something new is coming, your ears perk up. Something new? Yeah, something new. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, in this statement, I'm telling you that Jesus is casting a vision for what our family is to be like, and he's telling us something new. He's talked about loving one another before. In an earlier part of the Gospels, we hear him saying, you know, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That's an old commandment, though. That's from Leviticus 19. That's been around in Judaism for centuries. You're supposed to love people like you love yourself. Now, Jesus raised the the bar for how we're to see the whole world. He even said, love your enemies as yourself. Do good to those who persecute you. Man, that's a high bar. But what I want you to catch on is this is new. It's different. Do you see that? How does he want them to love each other in the family? The way he's loved them. And he is about to go to the cross for them. He has come and he has loved his own up to the point of death. And he's saying, That's what I want my family to be known for. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying to those closest to him, those who are going to go out and start this mission, he's saying, This is to be your reputation. When people look at you, I want them to go, Wow. Look at how they love each other. Look at the sacrificial way they love each other. They love each other the way Jesus loved us. That's the reputation that he wants. That sounds really hard, doesn't it? So let's slow down and let's look at two concepts that are very important. And if we miss this, everything that we talk about in the one another series is going to be real weighty and burdensome. And we're going to walk away going, oh, I, I can't do that. And no, you can't unless you get these two key ideas. And the first one is you have to be in the family first. Last week, Lance used the same passage to share the gospel. It's a great chapter for the gospel. It's John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to an old Pharisee, a legalist, who knows the word of, knows the word of God such as it is at that point backwards and forwards. And he says something strange to him. He says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. And the old Pharisee scratches his head, and I don't know what you're talking about. But Jesus keeps working with him very patiently. And at one point, he says this to him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Jesus said, Nicodemus, I'm talking about a second birth, and it's of a spiritual nature. And Nicodemus is still struggling with it. If you go back and you read through that, you'll see he's still trying to figure it out. And Jesus works with him some more. And we get to that most famous verse of Scripture in that chapter, John three sixteen. You probably know it by heart if you've been around a church very long. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Nicodemus, you enter into this kingdom, you enter into this family through simple childlike faith. This is the biggest news the world's ever heard. The biggest headline that the universe has ever printed. God loves you and he wants you in his forever family. The door is open, the carpet's laid out, the invitation is laid bare to you. If you've never heard that before, I would invite you to hear it with fresh ears today. I want you to know God loves you. That's the message of Scripture, and you're invited to come into his family through simple, childlike faith. Now, when you do that, When you place your faith in Christ and you join this family, there are some resources made available to you. And it's without those resources, we couldn't do this one another love, this vision that he's cast for us would not be possible. When we place our faith in Christ, the spirit of the living God comes and dwells our heart and creates within us a new heart in which Christ, which God can dwell with man. And that source of life, when we dwell in that, when we live out of that, then we're able to love God to love one another the way he's going to be encouraging us to, inviting us to. A mentor 20 years ago shared something with me. I didn't have to write it down. I've remembered it ever since he shared it with me, and that's unusual for me, by the way. (laughs) I usually don't remember things unless I write them down or hear them a lot. I want you to remember this. You can't give away what you've never received. Let me say it again. You can't give away what you've never received. You can't love the world the way God loves the world unless you receive his love. Jesus said this, and this is going back now to John chapter 15, which is a critical chapter in our Bible. If you've been around here very long, you hear us go there on a regular basis. He tells us this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And notice what he says, for apart from me you can do nothing. You can't do this unless you abide. And that word abide, it's a huge concept. We could do a whole series just on abiding alone. But when we come to that word, it word simply means remain, stay. My favorite explanation of it is live with. Unless you live with this truth. Unless you live with Jesus. Moment by moment, day by day, continual dependence upon him. This abiding principle. If we miss this, we're not going to be able to love one another. If we miss this, that continuum from moving from A to B to C to D and making our progress in in our, in our walk with Christ, we can't do it unless we learn what it means to abide. That's the only way we can love the way Jesus wants us to love. He says this a few verses later. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the love of God. Abide in it. It's an ocean of love. It's an ocean without beaches. It's an ocean without a bottom. It's an endless supply of love. And he says, when you abide in that, like a branch abides on the trunk of a tree or a vine on the, on the vine, a branch on the vine of a, of a wine, what am I trying? A grapevine? <laughs> there it is. Unless you abide, unless you receive it, you can't give it out. Now, I want you to think about the principle. It's very simple, but it's very, very important. You can't give away what you don't receive. So as we move into these one-anothers, and we're going to look at a couple of them today, we need to realize we can't do it unless we receive it first. Now, what I'm going to do next is I'm going to show you the list of all the one and others that we're going to do over the next eight weeks. I want you to read them with me. Look at this. Devotion to one another, honoring one another, bearing with one another, encouraging one another, edifying one another, serving one another, carrying burdens for one another, fellowshipping with one another, and then we'll circle back around to the the all-encompassing concept in our last message of loving one another, which flows through all of them. But look at that list. Can you imagine trying to do that in your own strength? And remember, this is about family love. And we got some people that are grumpy and hard to get along with and aren't all that safe. And some of them are just weird, if we're honest. That's, that's what he's inviting us to. That's the vision he's casting. I want you to love your family that way. And you look at that and go, I don't know if I can do that. And you can't unless we circle back around to that first step to the concept of abiding. When we abide, we're able to do that. So let's roll up our sleeves this morning, and let's start looking at what it looks like to love one another. We're going to start with the first one, devotion to one another. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, because one of the questions you may be asking yourself is, has anybody ever done this very well? Well, actually, in the early church, we have some information that they did a pretty good job right out of the gate. In chapter two, we have Pentecost that takes place. Peter then goes out and he preaches this great sermon and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Maybe that was you just a few moments ago when you heard the great news that God loves you and wants you and your family. They heard that message and they accepted it with childlike faith. And then we read these amazing things in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching And the fellowship, and the breaking bread, and the prayers. Notice to one another. These are the other people in their family. The teachers, they had fellowship, they broke bread, they're praying with one another. So that one verse, that's our devotion to one another. What what do we mean by the word devoted? Well, here's an explanation of it to stick by, close at hand, attach oneself, wait on, be faithful to someone, to be devoted. To someone, and notice what the first thing in that list was. I kind of found this remarkable, and I really got stuck on it and had to meditate on it for for a while. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. As I thought through that, think about what they were attached to when they, what were the apostles' teaching? That great news the God of the universe in the person of the Son has come to earth, and He has died for you. He's paid for your sins and he's opened the door and invited you to come and be in his family. And as they thought about that, I think they realized the God of heaven's devoted to me. Do you know how I would explain devotion? Somebody has your back. Somebody's got your back. The message of the gospel is that the God of the universe has your back. He looked at the mess that the world was in and he said, They need help, they can't help themselves. I'm going to move into the world, I'm going to have their back, and I'm going to make a way for redemption. The God of the universe had their back, and it rocked their world as they meditated on it, as they marinated in it. They began to do something different. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And verse 44, and all who believed, those are the people in the family, All who believed were together and had all things in common. Look at what they did. Verse 45, and they sell their possessions and and their belongings, and they distribute them all their proceeds to all as they had need. Do you hear what they said? They had each other's back. Isn't that something? Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness of heart, praising God, Having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They recognized that God has my back, and then they started looking around and they saw people who were in need, and they moved into their life and they had their back. Remember, you can't give away what you haven't received. Their minds, their hearts, their lives were transformed when they realized that the God of the universe loved them that much. And then they were able to love others. And look at what happened. They had favor. People started noticing. People started saying, look at how those Christians love each other. That guy over there, he sold a field and he took the money and he gave it to this guy. They've got each other's back. Now, I mentioned a while ago, I know not all of us have had a good family of origin, you may have had a horrible family of origin. You may not even know who your family is, but there is something deep down inside of each and every one of us as human beings that knows this is the way family's supposed to be. We're supposed to have each other's back. That's what a family does. And the vision that Jesus cast, he said, "I want you to love others the way I have loved you. I want you to have each other's back. That's devotion. And we can't do it for one another until we receive it. And each week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about action steps. If you go to your, if you're on the YouVersion app, you'll need to scroll down, or you can just cross the page in the paper bulletin. We have a section where we're going to talk about how do we take steps to do this. Well, for the first one, for being devoted to one another, guess what the first step is? Abide in Jesus. Again, a huge concept couple of reflective questions to ask yourself. Do I regularly spend time praying and listening to him? Now, I'm not talking about a four-hour quiet time where you get up at three in the morning. No, what we're talking about here is bringing him into the rhythm of your whole day. Remember what I said about abiding, living with Jesus? Bringing him alongside of you as you're on your way to work, while you're at work, when you're at home, when you're at the dinner table. Abiding in Him, thinking about Him, setting your mind on Him, and recognizing He's devoted to me. Step two, be intentional with your time with other believers. In fact, be with other believers. Think about how close a family would be if you're never together. We have to be together with each other. We have to be together with the ones that are hard to get along with and the weird ones and the whole bunch because they're family. And we need to ask some questions. And when we ask questions, we need to really, genuinely want to have an answer. It requires some vulnerability. It requires some risk. When someone asks you a question, tell them the truth. And then the goal is having received Christ's love and his, his power within you. You move to step three, and you share your time, talent, and treasures with someone. And you ask the question, do I, do I give my time, talent, and treasures to meet the needs of other people. That's what they were doing in the first church. That's what Jesus' love looks like in the, in the Jesus family. When we start taking our time, our talent, and we start looking at other people and see where they have needs, and we move into that, that's what it looks like, and that's what people see, and they go, I want to be a part of that family. I hope and I pray you've experienced that somewhere in your life. It's happened to me. I first came to this church about 22 years ago. It was at another building on Cedar Elm. And when I came, I'm going to tell you the truth, I wasn't all that enthusiastic about being at church in general. I had a bad case of church hurt that happened to me in my 20s. And all through my 20s, I wasn't all that fond of church in general. And so I kind of went a little reluctantly into that building. And I wasn't real excited about that. And that may be your case here. You may be suffering from some church hurt. You may have been dragged here by a friend. I hope at some point in your journey here or somewhere you experience someone loving you with this type of devotion. I get to tell you that that happened to me. I had people move into my life and ask me genuine questions. And they looked at my life and they actually moved into my world and had my back. And did things for me that I could not do for myself. I learned in this church how to abide. I learned in this church that I don't always have to have the right answer or have a perfect life. But that someone will have my back. And ultimately, and the most important one, is I learned that Jesus has my back. That there's a devotion beyond what any imperfect human being has ever done and if you had told me 22 years ago one day you'll preach at this church I would have laughed at you and everybody else would have laughed at you I promise you but when people start living this one another life out it changes things, it changed the course of my life it's changed the course of the lives of many people that's the power of living the one another life but let's not stop with that let's move to the second one in our list let's talk about what it looks like to honor one another That one was a little bit harder for me to get my mind around. Paul says this. This is where we get it from. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So our our next one, the principle of honoring one another, we take from this verse. It's a very interesting verse. The very first word, the one I have love, that is translated love, is from a Greek compound word where Paul does something kind of strange. He takes two Greek words, both that have to do with family love. One is philos, which is like Philadelphia, brotherly love. And the next one was storge, which was just translated family love. So think about how redundant, family, brotherly love. (laughs) Paul's making a point. This is what family love looks like. And then he makes a statement, outdo one another in showing honor, esteeming one another He said, I want you to, if anything, I want you to play a game. Try to outdo how you honor one another. Well, what does it mean? Well, let's look at honor. Honor is the amount at which something is valued. How much of value do you ascribe to someone? And how do you ascribe value to someone? I want you to turn in your Bibles, one last place, to Philippians chapter 2. What Paul gives us in a nugget form, he's going to unpack for us in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2 we have this passage that begins in verse 3. And Paul writes, "Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." That word significant, it's just like the word honor, it has the idea of a, attributing value to someone. He doesn't say you that others are more valuable than you. He says Count them more valuable than you. And verse 4, Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest... Of others have each other's back is kind of a part of this honoring too. they all build upon one another there, there's going to be a cyclical relationship within this he's saying I want you to try to outdo how you communicate honor to one of and the way that you do that is you look at other people and you say you know what and other people in the family by the way that's the weird ones and the hard to get along ones with too you look at them and you communicate to them in some way I value you Well, what does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Apostle Paul tells us where he gets this idea, and he didn't get it from himself. In verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, notice, in Christ Jesus. He's saying, I've got this idea from Jesus, and it's your idea, it's your heart when you're in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He said this was Jesus' paradigm for how he entered the world, and he communicated to us that he honors us. And maybe that word is still kind of fuzzy to you. Well, let me unpack it a little bit. How did God, how did Jesus, the eternal son of God, honor us? He gave up his comforts. He gave up his convenience and he gave up his well being. He sacrificed for us. Think about where he was, what Paul just told us. He's the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords, he's the eternal Son of God, he's the creator of the universe, Alpha and Omega. And he left his throne in heaven and he entered into a human body and he suffered, he served. He gave up his convenience, his comfort, and even his well being. And by doing so, he said, You're worthy. I love you. If you want to know how much God loves you, you look at the cross. That's the price tag that he placed upon you. The statement that I'm about to make is going to be very, very hard for you to accept because it's hard for me to accept. To say this can only be said when you abide in the truth of how much God honors you. My worth does not come from what you think of me. My worth does not come from how talented I am. My worth doesn't come from how good-looking I am. My worth doesn't come from any of the other things in this world that tells you that's what makes you worthwhile. Because the God of the universe left his comfort, his convenience, and gave up his well-being to come to the earth to rescue you. He said, that's what you're worth to me. He did that so that you would know that you are loved, you're seen, you're known, and you're loved. And he wants you in the family, and that's enough. That's enough for you to look in the mirror and say, I have value. I have worth. It doesn't matter what someone thinks about me. And here's the thing. If we could believe that, if we abide in it, if we drink deeply of it, guess what happens? We then have margin to give up our convenience, our comfort, and sometimes even our well-being to move down into the life of someone else and make a sacrifice for them. That can look a lot of different ways. I saw it on a pretty regular basis when I was a chaplain. There's one case that I'll never forget. A man was struck struck with an illness that was going to be very long and very debilitating over a long period of time. And I saw his wife give up her convenience, her comfort, and her well-being to take care of him for six long years. And I thought when I heard the story, man, when I go in this house, it's going to be sad. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be burdensome, but when I walked into that house, that room was full of light and joy and happiness. It was full of life. As that man lay there dying, he almost glowed, and his wife glowed because she had discovered how to abide in Christ. It wasn't because circumstances were great. It wasn't because everybody was watching on and clapping for her. Nobody knew this was going on. She had found worth. She had found that because God has my back, I can have somebody else's back. That strength was given to her from abiding in Christ and to move into the world of her husband and give up her convenience, comfort, and her well-being for another human being. It's powerful. It can be a small thing. Maybe you surrender your favorite aisle seat in the sanctuary to make it more convenient for a visitor to come in. Maybe in a business deal with a believer, you look at them and you think about what they've been going through and maybe you surrender your profit or part of it just for no other reason than to bless them. Not because you have to, not because you owe it to them, just to bless them, just to move in their life and say, I value you you're worth something and you can do that because the god of the universe has looked at you and said I love you and I'm going to give up so and I don't have to in Romans 5 he reminds us while we were yet sinners Christ did this for us it wasn't because we were such pretty shiny wonderful looking creatures down here that he came down to save us he came down to save us because we were a mess and we needed someone we needed someone to have our back the Jesus vision for our family is that we love each other that way. And we can't do it in and of ourselves, but we can do it if we abide. So we've got enough time today and I'm going to tell you a story. I love stories. I really love a story that begins with it's a true story. The story is about a man that many of you may not have heard of. His name is Ernest Gordon. I'm going to show you a picture of him. This is Ernest Gordon. He was a Scottish man who went into the Allied services to fight World War II. He's very healthy and robust in this military shot. In fact, he was of a ruddy complexion, and his and his comrades named him Rosie. That, that was his nickname. He was just full of life. He loved the world. He had all these plans about being wealthy and successful once he got out of the war. And he got into the war, and he ended up being captured by the Japanese, and he was transported to one of the most horrific camps that has ever existed in war. You may have heard of an old classic movie, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. It was in one of those type of work camps where they're building this railroad that he was sent. He was a prisoner of war for three and a half years. And in that prison camp, he went into very few left. For every mile of track they laid, almost 400 men died. But he went into that concentration camp with some other problems, he went into that camp without Christ. In fact, he went in there with this opinion of the Jesus family. Look at what he wrote. As far as I could see, they, that's the Jesus family. Hey, that's, he's talking about you and me, the big C church. He said this is what he thought. They managed to extract the bubbles of the champagne of life, leaving it insipid, flat, and tasteless. I infinitely prefer a robust hell to this gray, sunless abode of the faithful where everybody was angry. With everybody else. I wish I could tell you that he was an extremely bitter or jaded individual, but he really wasn't. Sadly, sometimes that is the reputation of the church. Sometimes it's the reputation of a local C church, a little congregation. And that is the exact opposite of what we were called to. We were called to love each other, not to be angry with each other, not to be louder than the other person but to love each other sacrificially. But that's his experience at that point. He went in there, and one of the things he learned is when he went in there that some of those comrades of his that had claimed to be faithful to Jesus, they lost a lot of that when they got in the camp. In that camp, the law of the jungle took over. It was every man for himself. There was no family love taking place there. He saw comrades kick and fight and bite each other to move them out of the way just to get a few scraps of rice and and food just to survive stealing from each other that was what was taking place the hospital in that camp had a nickname the death house that was the hospital and one day Ernest Gordon found himself laying on a stretcher unable to walk so diseased he had to be quarantined and he was being carried to the death house and here's the thing about the death house many went in but very few came out And they took him in there and laid him on the dirt floor of the death house. And he figured, well, this is it. But then something happened. There was a few, not many, but there were a few comrades in there that started living this one another vision out. Some of them built a little hut over to the side. He had to be quarantined, and they came. Some came and took him out and put him in there, and these were not all the same people. And then another soldier started coming by on a daily basis and cleaning his wounds and giving him some food and helping him get restored back to health. And little stories like this began to pop up around the camp. And then there was one big story about a work detail that had gone out to work on the railway. They came back in, and as the guards were taking inventory of their picks and shovels and things like that, they came up a shovel short. And the lead guard became furious at the group, and he said, I want to know who took it, I want to know who stole it, you need to confess. And none of the men said anything. Finally, he picks up his rifle and his broken English, he points it at the whole group, and he says, "All die, All die. They knew from their experience this was not a, an empty threat. Moments went by that seemed like hours, and finally one of the men stepped forward and said three words I did it. The angry, enraged guard didn't just put a simple bullet in his head, which would have been merciful. Instead, he beat him to death there in front of his comrades. Shortly after that experience, it became common knowledge that the shovel wasn't missing, they had miscounted. That man hadn't stolen anything. But you know what he did? he counted others more significant than himself. He looked around at his comrades and he said, their lives, I'm going to honor their lives. I'm going to give up my well-being for them. And that story got around and some things started to change. And now I want to share with you the words of Ernest Gordon himself, where he says at this turning point and the things that were happening to him, something started happening in his heart. Something started happening in the hearts of others. And he writes this, it was dawning on us officers and other ranks alike, that the law of the jungle, that's not the law for man. We had seen for ourselves how quickly it could strip most of us of our humanity, reduce us to the levels of that lower-than-beast. Now, death was still with us, no doubt about that, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves that the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and those that made for death. And as he thought about these forces in his mind, he came up with two lists, and he wrote this. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, selfish, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride were all anti-life. And then he says, love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, creative faith. On the other hand, these are the essence of life. And then this statement by the man who, remember That Jesus family, they've drained all the bubbles out of the champagne of life. They're just a bunch of angry people. He writes this, these are the gifts of God to men. His life in a place of death was transformed because a few people didn't surrender their faith. A few people, and it probably started with one, but somewhere along the line, somebody was abiding Someone didn't let the jadedness and the butchery of that camp take it away from them. And they abided in Christ, and they moved into the life of another. And then that one moved into the life of another. And this man's life was so transformed. When he came back, he didn't pursue a life of of riches and wealth and power. He went into the ministry and spent the rest of his life as a pastor. And he said many of the other men did the same thing. And they would look back on that time in a place of death, and they would see it. that was the place of life. The one another life changes things. And Jesus said, this is the way I want the world to be changed. It's his vision for how the world will be transformed, not by being louder and more angry or more powerful than the people around us, but by loving in a different way. And it begins with our family. I know many of you, like me, have deep wounds from your family of origin or from a church family. And I'm so sorry I wish they could just go away. But I'm going to tell you that the way that you start to be healed from church hurt or from family hurt is when you go to the perfect Father and you abide in the perfect love. You drink deeply from that well, and that healing washes over you. And you can let go of your bitterness. You can let go of your anger. You can let go of your long memory of everything everyone's done for you. And you can then, receiving that love, start to look at others, and you could be the agent for change. In someone else's life, it's the power of the gospel, this family love. It begins here. It begins with us. And as I went through this, you know, sometimes you can get a little cynical, a little, a little jaded in your thinking. And you ask, okay, is everybody going to catch on this and just go out and start doing it? And that's the wrong question. There's 131 churches in Wichita Falls, and that's probably a low count. And every single one of them are imperfect. But I bet none of them are as bad as that prison camp. The question is not, is everybody else going to get on board with this? The question is to me, as I've studied it, is, Joe, are you going to get on board with it? Are you going to abide and are you going to embrace the vision of Jesus? Because he said it so much simpler. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. When we love others the way Jesus loved us, the world starts to change. So I invite you on this journey. It won't always be easy. There's going to be some challenging things that come up in this list. There's going to be some conviction. I've been convicted. I expect to be convicted again. But remember that important section. It all comes back to abiding, to living with Jesus. That's where we start. If we try to do this in our own strength, if we try to white knuckle it and get it done, we'll, we'll, we'll run out of steam. It's abiding in him, receiving it first. You can't give what you haven't received. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.